Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. If uh, you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're in a series called The Praying Church. Um, and if there was ever a time to be a praying church, right, this is the time. We have looked at different aspects of what it means to be a church that prays, not just in the activity of prayer, but really what it means to seek the face of God together. And so throughout the week, there are opportunities for you to be praying, not just together, but this is a citywide movement. And so there are online opportunities throughout the week for you to pray with other brothers and sisters from other churches, in-person opportunities for you to pray in different locations throughout the, the city at other churches. And then this week at Imago from 12 to 1, the, the prayer space will be open. And so if you have space in your week, we would invite you to come down Monday through Friday from 12 to 1, come into the prayer space, spend some time uh, praying for our city, seeking God together as well. But when you think of uh, the church's prayer meeting, there are so many reasons like the church gathers. Um, and yet when you look at typical church prayer meetings, they are, they are usually the least well-attended things. When you look at the book of Acts, that wasn't the case. They gathered to pray, but they gathered differently and they prayed differently. They prayed as though their life depended on it. And prayer wasn't prayer for the sake of prayer. Prayer was connected to their identity, like who they were, what they were supposed to be about in the world. And I feel like this text, Acts 4, gives us a picture of that that I think will help us today kind of recapture our own identity and why we would be praying in that way as well. Before we jump in in verse 23, I want to give you some backstory. So Jesus has risen from the dead, and he tells the disciples to wait in the upper room uh, after he ascends to heaven. And so they wait in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes, and, and that's Pentecost. It, it fills the church, and they're baptized with the Spirit. Peter preaches and thousands of people come to faith and the church is born. And, and the church begins to live out its new life. There is this new community, this new society of Jesus's people in the midst of this world that has already existed, that is a pluralistic world with Roman power and rule with multiple religions that are happening, and the church is there. It exists. It's small, uh, but it has a firm identity, and it is sent on mission. And one day, Peter and John are walking along, and they find a man who is begging for money. And he, the, Peter says to him, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you, and he heals him in the name of Jesus. And there's this big stir. People are like amazed at this healing. 
The religious leaders, the high priests of the day, they are upset about this because they have, they, the man was healed in Jesus' name. And so they, they kind of capture and arrest James and John, and they bring him and they put him on trial. And during the trial, they ask him, by what power or what name are you doing this? And then it says, Peter, filled with the Spirit, says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man is healed. Now, if you remember, Jesus told the disciples, like, you will be brought before leaders. You will be brought before uh, the heads and governors, and you will be asked to give an account. And at that time, my spirit will give you words to say. And so immediately, Peter's experiencing these things that Jesus taught them. And the rulers are looking at Peter and John, and they know some things about them. They know that they're uneducated, they're fishermen, uh, that they are untrained, they're unschooled, they're just ordinary, average people. And yet there is something about them. They have this incredible courage And it says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus, that they they had a sense about them that they had been with Jesus. It makes me wonder if anyone that hangs out with me would notice that about me, right? That am I someone that people would say, he's a guy that has been with Jesus. Would they say that about you? Well, the, really, the rulers realize they can't charge him with anything because they just performed a miracle. They healed a guy. God healed a guy. And miracles aren't illegal, just like today. Um, it's not against the law to, to have a miracle happen. But they do threaten them. They threaten them and order them, do not speak about Jesus anymore. And they reply, uh, you decide whether it's right for us to obey God or you. Uh, as for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and what, with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. And so then they go back to the people and the church has been gathered and they're gathered and they're praying knowing that, that Peter and John have been on trial. So that's, that's where we are. That's what's happened. And now we show up in verse 23. It says this, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In other words, these threats. And when they heard this, they, meaning all these people, raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. So I love this passage because in it we get this picture of of an understanding that the early church had about their identity. And they understood that their identity was that they were Jesus's people sent into a hostile world like situation to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the world's one true king. And it wasn't just the claim that Jesus made, but that he confirmed this through his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. And God was orchestrating all of that, even through the powers that be, that that even though Rome and, and the rulers of Israel and all these forces that are at work in the culture and in the world have power and authority, that that power and authority is working under God. And so even though they had crucified him and they made these orders, they say, but you, God, had decided beforehand that this would happen. They understood their identity that we're Jesus's people, that he has sent us into this world And our job is to proclaim that he is the world's true king. And they had this as a collective identity. And and that was their mission together. And they knew themselves well enough that they needed to pray, that they were calling on God to give them strength and enablement. And Peter knew himself. Like Peter knows that just months, weeks earlier, that he was standing there with Jesus saying, Jesus, I'm going to go to death with you. Like, I'm going to be right next to your side. And as soon as Jesus gets arrested, he's like, I don't know who Jesus is. Jesus who? So in the midst of these threats, they're not praying for protection. Jesus, just protect us. Jesus, just give us safety. Just make our lives comfortable. They just say, God, consider their threats and enable us to speak the word boldly. In other words, give us the courage and enablement to share the message of Jesus with people. And then they pleaded, God, not only would you give us that boldness and courage, but would you confirm it? Would you show up because you are the God that is ruling over all of this and show up with signs and wonders and do things that only you can do in the name of Jesus to confirm that this is truly a message from you. And God shows up in this power, and he fills them with the Spirit of God. Now, this isn't a baptism of the Spirit like like chapter 2, but this is what Paul talks about in being filled with the Spirit, this ongoing keep on being filled with the Spirit, that we gather together so the Holy Spirit will fill us, that we might have courage and enablement to do what he calls us to do. And so God shakes the place, 
and they're refreshed and they're filled with the Spirit and that, that gives them courage. And there is this there is this sort of overflow and impact on the community that comes from their identity as the sent people of Jesus. In verse 32, it tells us about that. Luke is the writer, and he describes it. And he's describing it just like he's noticing. And he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there weren't any needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed among anyone who had need. And so collectively, God's work among them and their faithfulness to the mission, to being Jesus's people, it resulted in this unity and, and this massive infusion of grace that overflowed into a, a love for one another and a caring for one another. It showed up in practical things like sharing resources and generosity and and, and taking care of each other's needs. So the apostles are preaching with power and God's grace is flowing with mutual care. And so when you think about the early church, people ask, is the book of Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Meaning, is it just describing uh, the historical events surrounding the church or is it prescriptive? Like, We're supposed to do everything they did. And my answer would be it's both. Like this is describing the church in a particular place and time. And so it's descriptive in that sense. Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead basically months ago from the time of this passage. So it's not only good news, but it's recent news here. And there are particular things about this situation that aren't anything like our situation today. But at the same time, they're prescriptive and they give us a picture of what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the church? To live out of our identity as the sent people of God and to live with this big gospel, believing that God still rules over the world, that God still has called us to be his sent people. And so when you think about their understanding of what the gospel was, uh, Peter, or I mean, Greg Okeson wrote a book called Public Missiology, and he uses this, uh, this analogy between thickness and thinness to describe people's understanding of their faith. And so when we, look at, when we look at the book of Acts, we see people who had a thick faith. And it was thick very much in the same way as if you were weaving a basket. You have one sort of reed. But as you combine it with other reeds and you weave it together in and out 
up next to each other. Collectively, it builds strength and it thickens and it becomes this strong, enduring, larger, beautiful thing. Because they understood that they were simply those who were participants in something that their God was doing. And that God was the one who came in Jesus. God was the one who was crucified and resurrected and ascended. God was the one that was alive and at work out there in the world. And their job was to go into this very complex culture that they were in, that they lived and they worked and they interacted with. They were part of the fabric of that society. And so there were many relationships that they had that shaped who they were. And they were able to talk about Jesus in a way that wasn't thin, it wasn't trite, it wasn't, it wasn't easy answers for complicated questions. And so they had a big God and a big trust and a big faith that allowed them to go into a complex situation and, and navigate that hostility and that pluralism and that mission filled as stronger durable people. And what that produced was the kind of faith that could endure, a very human faith that could get up next to people. Uh, I I love these passages where Peter's in conversation with like governors and the governor's like, you almost convinced me to become a Christian, you know? And Peter's like, yeah, I would hope I did. that's not like a weird thing. That's not Peter like, if you got hit by a bus tonight, where would you go? And I'm not saying that like that doesn't work, but I'm just saying there's a thickness to this faith that's not thin. And so for us, one of the reasons I think we, we detest the idea of sharing our faith is because Because Portland, very much like the New Testament culture, is a thick culture. It's complex. It's pluralistic. It's hostile at times. And to enter that culture with thin answers and a thin gospel, yeah, that makes you sick to your stomach. But as we relate to other people, other Christians, other people in other parts of the world, and we rub up and weave ourselves into their lives, then, and we see what real faith looks like in like Africa and other places, our faith thickens. And we begin to have like a bigger picture. I want, to, I want you to have a picture of what I'm talking about here. And uh, Gary Friesen is with us, one of our elders who is on mission to Africa. We want to welcome him up. If you are, if you're new with us since the pandemic, Gary has been an elder here for since, I don't know, 15, 17 years, something like that, 15, 15 and uh, he has moved to Rwanda to spend the rest of his life there, and the question that I have for you, you're going to share in a few weeks here, but, but today, you've always been a man of prayer, how has kind of interweaving your life with these brothers and sisters in Africa 
How has that thickened your understanding of faith in God and prayer? And my journey to Rwanda at the heart of Africa started right back here. I don't mean in the baptismal tank. Got to go a little further. That's the prayer space. And being on the prayer team and one of the other people who had been to Africa and had great ministry and then burned out. We were praying together regularly and he wanted to make sure I got to Rwanda and then I didn't burn out. And it was in the midst of that prayer, it really, really helped me. It was a great starting place. But I sensed it was prayer was going to get better when I got to Rwanda, and I was not disappointed. A couple days ago, one of my workers said, we really want God to work, and we're going to get together on Tuesday and pray for your trip. Well, that's kind of nice, and then I forgot about it. I'm taking a nap on Tuesday, hearing drums going off in the, my living room. And all of a sudden it hits me. I think this is the group <laughs> I forgot about. I head out into the living room. It's packed with people ready to pray. First sing and beat on drums and then pray. And I'm in the midst of them. And sitting on a chair during part of that time with them surrounding me, there was a faith that just naturally resulted in prayer that was deeper, thicker than I had experienced before. What was back here was real and was good. This was something special. I remember, too, while I've been there, a group started, uh, my students, I helped them and we worked together. And that group, ABC, has a partnership with the Bible Project. And it's a prayer partnership. And we pro I promised them a group in Rwanda who would pray for ABC and for them. So I'm looking for somebody to lead the team. <laughs> and it's not hard to know once I meet her. In her past, she had no food for her family. And she said to God, I'm going up that mountain and I'm going to pray till I either die or you answer my prayer. <laughs> She's been praying ever since. And I saw her family, they're not dead. They're doing well. <laughs> I asked her to lead a team, and I said, once a week, would you pray for ABC and for the Bible Project? And she said yes. One early morning, I was heading to the church to pray, and I get there, and I see the team. They're not coming. They're leaving. They had prayed all night. Then I found out, they were praying two nights a week, all night, for ABC and for the Bible Project. That is the kind of prayer and faith 
that when you're interlocked, it will change you. I encourage you, got a prayer space, start right back there, and after a while, join me in Rwanda. Thank you, Gare. So you get a picture, though, of that. Like, that's what I mean between thick and thin. Uh, the difference when we interweave our lives with each other. And it, it, it's not only happens with other believers and why it's so important that we don't just hang out with people who look like us and think like us and vote like us and believe like us. But it also happens when we are embedded in the world. In other words, when you go to these places and spaces that God sends you to, the places you work, the places you live, the places where kids go to school, the relationships that you have there, as, you, as your life gets interwoven with those relationships, that thickens you as well so that your conversations about God and Jesus and, and the need for Jesus, that becomes a thicker witness, a more faithful witness. And one of the challenging things is that to thoughtfully engage with people who aren't Christians yet in the complexity of our broken world and even the evils of our world, evangelicals technically, uh, traditionally, we're, we're very bad at that. Historically, we're known for getting excited and riled up and shouting pat answers at complicated issues. That's very thin. But to relate in ways that trusts and has confidence that God is reigning, God's ruling, and we want to seek to actually understand it both intellectually, theologically, and relationally ways in which Jesus can be good news in this moment to these people. That's going to lead to a thicker faith and a bigger gospel. And I believe that is what Jesus is inviting us to do. And that comes from interacting with all these people in these spaces. So when we look at this, this church in Acts, and now we come to our lives and our moment, and we too are in a moment of threat and disruption, and one of the questions that many of us are asking is, what does the church do in a moment like this? And I think what this text invites us to ask ourselves is, have we embraced or lost our true identity as the people of God? Do we need to return to who we most deeply are, the sent people of Jesus? When Jesus shows up in the upper room after his resurrection, he greets the disciples and says, peace be with you, and then says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, and gives them the Holy Spirit. So we are sent into Portland. We're sent to bear witness 
that Jesus is the world's true king, but, but also he is the lover and the forgiver and the hope of each and every person. And he confirmed that right to be king and to be savior and lover and hope by his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And so in a moment of disruption, we are reminded of who we are and why God has put us here and what he has called us to do. And the most simple way I could say it is that God has us here to love us and to send us out to help other people experience that Jesus is alive in their life too. And to experience that through your own human story as you share Jesus through your life. That means sharing the gospel is going to be best done through the resources of your humanity. How Jesus has met you. How the truth of Jesus being alive and reigning and ruling has shown up in your story. That There's a thickness to that. There's a realness to that. The thinness is trying to talk about salvation in a wooden way or a transactional way that doesn't include your humanity or any real experience of Jesus. And that feels thin to anyone that has ever heard it or lives in the complexity of pandemic and this moment. We are never called to save people from life. But Jesus saves us in life and for life. And so when we share our experience of Jesus doing that for us, it's just an invitation. And you become a lens that people get to see and understand and hope that this could be true. So when Jesus meets you in your work or in your family, in your addiction or your pain, in your dreams or your failure, your fears or your mistakes, then that Jesus can empower you to share with others who share all those same spaces and issues that you do, but just without Jesus. And yet Jesus is already at work there because he is this king of the world. And I believe that Jesus wants them to know him. We aren't trying to force a relationship between a Jesus that isn't into these people and people who aren't into them, right? That's not what we're called to do. We're called to pay attention as the spirit draws people to Jesus and people awaken to the spirit. And so this identity as the sent people of God is grounded in a big gospel. Jesus, the king of the world, but a simple gospel, the Jesus, the love and hope of every person. And it gives birth to a faith that is thick, not thin. And so with, if you're the type of person that thinks like, I just cower at the thought of, of like sharing my faith, more than likely, it's because you have an overly thin, simplistic, transactional understanding of what that means. 
that's been divorced from your own human story and loaded up with guilt of what you're supposed to do, to go sell salvation to pagans. And the thinness of that is terrifying. I agree. But if Jesus truly is king of the world, if he is the resurrected hope and love of every person, and you have met him and encountered him in the depths of your life and been changed by him, then you are simply being invited to share that experience as God opens up opportunity with all of the people he sends you to. And when you add that to collectively, right, when, when we collectively stretch out our hands in Jesus' name through generosity, hospitality, showing mercy, doing justice, serving the city so that God might heal people in Jesus' name, there is a thickness to that witness that is validating this gospel that we share with others. It is powerful. In many ways, it's simple because we're not, we're not trying to pump it out or create it. We're just in the flow and in the rhythm of what Jesus is doing, but it's not thin and it's not simplistic. We're just trying to participate with God and being who he made us to be as his sent people. So when you think about being the sent people, we gather here, right? There's two movements that we do as the church. We gather, and when we gather, we gather because we need each other. This is not a solo project. We need God to fill us with his spirit, and we need each other. We need to pray for each other like our life depends it. We need to pray for God's mission and his work in the city. We need to pray for our friends and family and coworkers. And so we need each other. We can't do this alone. That's one movement. We gather. But then when we're done gathering, we are sent. And if we had a map of the city and each one of you came up here and took a Sharpie and you drew where you went from here, throughout the week, and you, here's where I go to work, and here's where I live, and here's where I get coffee, and here's where I grocery shop, and you know, here's my dentist, and whatever, here's where I walk the dog, and here's my neighbors. Think about what that map would look like after each one of us took a turn. And what that is, is the church on mission. That is this, that is the woven thickness of the basket that is created by God as the sent people of God. And that's just one service that is pandemic size, right? Think about the church in Portland. And so we desperately need each other. That's why we gather. And I'm not talking about online or in person. I'm simply saying we need each other to gather and then we're sent we need to pray because like Acts 4, we depend on it. We can't do this alone. So out over the last two years, we, the church, not just Imago, but the church, we've been through a lot of things, right? Threats to our identity, both from within the church and from without of the church. A global pandemic 
And all of that takes a toll after a while. But I am convinced that God is not done with his church. And the question that many of us ask is, well, what is the church now? Or who is the church now? Is it this place where we go to get all of our needs met? Or is it this organization that it's easy to belong to and it's convenient and it fits my schedule? Is it a group of people who vote like me and think like me and look like me and agree about all the same stuff? Or is it a place that has lots of groups and classes and activities that fit my taste and interest? And and no, the answer is no. It is none of those things. The church, in its simplest form, is the sent people of God gathering to be loved by God and sent out, right? Those who have encountered the living Jesus sent to help other people encounter that Jesus is alive in them too. And the church is not a club. It's a movement of the Spirit of God that's unstoppable. Like, it should not be here. If that church in Acts is where it started 2,000 years, like if it was a business, it wouldn't have made it. If it was a business today, it definitely wouldn't make it. But it's still here, and it endures in its global historical messiness and sin and wickedness at times, but God is in it. Somehow, he is the life of it. And the truth is, My fear in this moment is not, will people come back to church or will the church get back to normal? I don't think we're going back to normal. I think God is refining his people, not just here at Imago, but the city and the country. My fear is that some of us are going to miss what God's doing in this moment. Because rather than grasping our identity as the sent people of Jesus and joining God on mission, we're simply waiting for the organization to get back to normal. We're standing there waiting for the Bible bus to pick us up and take us to the programs. And if that's us, we very well might miss God in this moment. It reminds me of the story that Jesus tells of a banquet. He says, there's this king that threw this big banquet Beautiful banquet, and he invites all the right people, the rich, the, the rulers, the religious, and they all had better things to do. They had reasons and excuses why they couldn't come, and so he turned around, and he went out to the streets, and he invited all the wrong people, right, the irreligious and the people who don't belong at those kind of banquets, and they came, and they celebrated, and they were so stoked and so happy and so thankful And Jesus used that story to say, this is what I'm doing with the kingdom. I'm taking it from the ones who think it belongs to, and I'm giving it to those who actually want it and need it. See, and I'm not talking about in person or online or trying to guilt you anything. What What I'm saying is that this is a moment where we're either gonna join Jesus in seeing his kingdom break in in Portland and offer the gospel to the people that he's offering it to? Or are we going to be too busy 
waiting for the church bus to start running again. The invitation to us, I believe, is to reclaim who we are as the people of God, the sent people of God, sent into the world to boldly proclaim that Jesus is alive and he's ready to encounter your life too. When everything is falling apart in Portland, the country, whatever, a community that gives itself to Jesus' kingdom like that, that will be a place of power where the kingdom of God is showing up. That will be a place of hope and joy and, uh, and miracle. Amen?